0: Heidi Harris, this is the Heidi Harris Show podcast. I do these a couple of times a week. You can find them anywhere you get podcasts. You can also find them at odyssey.com. Odyssey, of course, is the radio company I work for and they post these podcasts on their sites also. So type in Heidi Harris at the top and you can get all the podcasts of the show I do Sunday night in St. Louis on 97.1 FM talk or these podcasts. Sunday night, speaking of, I had a very powerful interview that I wanted to share with you on this podcast in case you don't listen to both. Very important. I've been looking at the issue of brain death for a while and how it's defined, how it's often misused, the amount of money that's involved in the organ transplant industry, and yes, it is an industry, how much your body is worth in spare parts. And Dr. Paul Byrne has been writing about this, talking about this since 1967, And he's a neonatologist and a pediatrician and an expert on this. And I wanted you to hear what he has to say. And in the future, I'll probably do another interview with him or ask him a lot more questions. But I want you to hear what he had to say on my Sunday night show. So I will include the intro to my Sunday night St. Louis show in this. And I hope you learned something. And I hope you pass this on to anybody you think would be interested. This is important information. The
1: Heidi Harris Show. Heidi Harris. The Heidi Harris Show is on the air.
0: Good evening. Always a privilege to be with you every Sunday night right here on 97.1 FM Talk. Got something very interesting to talk with you about tonight. A topic that's been of interest to me for a very long time, and that is the topic of brain death and how they define it because there are, you know, you hear cases all the time of somebody, well, they said they were brain deads, we turned off the machines, but there's a lot of money in your organs. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't be an organ donor, that's not a decision I could make or ever would try to make for anybody. But there are aspects of the organ donation system that you need to know about, and you may not be aware of, and the way brain death is defined and, you know, they'll tell you in the certain tests that they do. And I'm just getting up to speed on a lot of these because I have been paying attention to it for a while. And maybe you have too. And I hunted down a doctor who's been talking about this since the 1960s. His name is Dr. Paul Byrne. He's currently a clinical professor of pediatrics at University of Toledo. He's a neonatologist and pediatrician. He's also president of Life Guardian Foundation, past president of the Catholic Medical Association for St. Louis. Folks, he's a founder and director of the Neonatal Intensive Care Unit at Cardinal Glennon Hospital in St. Louis, which is great. And he was a clinical clinical professor of pediatrics at St. Louis University of School of Medicine for many years. So his resume, I could read it to you for the next 45 minutes. All right. He's been writing about this, talking about this for decades. Ethan, give me a thumb up. Got him on the phone? My ace producer, Ethan. Dr. Paul Byrne, welcome to The Heidi Harris Show. A privilege to have you, sir.
1: Thank you very much for inviting me, Heidi.
0: Yeah, I've been following you for a while, and I just thought people needed to hear what you had to say about this. So let's go back to when you first started becoming aware of the issue of brain death, and they suddenly started classifying something as brain death because they started to need organs after some organs were transplanted successfully. Right? Talk a little bit about that and your concerns initially when this happened.
1: Well, actually, the... the, uh, getting organs for transplantation, began in 1968. And, but my interest in it began in 1975. And uh, because of a baby at Cardinal Leonard Children's Hospital, uh, uh, baby Joseph, who was uh, on a ventilator, born prematurely, and he wouldn't move and wouldn't respond. So a brainwave test was done and that was interpreted as consistent with cerebral death. So the suggestion then was to stop treating him. I said, well, I don't do that. I treat little babies, some live, some die, and I continued to treat him. He eventually did get off the ventilator and when he was continuing to, uh, uh, to uh, do well, about six months after he was born, That began my study of brain death. But to just finish with Joseph just a bit, when he went to school, he got good grades, he ran track, he played baseball. He eventually married, has three children. But it was because (laughs) of Joseph that I started to study the subject of brain death.
0: Yeah, because you started looking into it and saying, wait a minute, the way they're defining it is not the way, that doesn't sound like actual death, right? That's what you were looking at with baby Joseph.
1: Correct not actual death. And so my study then is what is this? That, that And so I asked the neurologist who reported as consistent with cerebral death for articles about brain death. And it took me about two years to understand the language of brain death and and understand what was going on. I say it took me that long, but that was To decipher what was being written about it. Actually, what occurred in brain death is that a uh, heart was transplanted in South Africa, Dr. Christian Bernard, uh, on December the 1st, 1967. And it got worldwide notoriety. But what then happened is three days later, they did a heart transplant in Brooklyn, New York. They cut the beating heart out of a three-day-old baby and transplanted it into an 18-day-old baby, and both babies died. It was illegal. It was immoral. And so they, their solution to the problem was to appoint a committee at Harvard. And the committee at Harvard invented brain death. They didn't do any studies on any kind of dogs or cats or rats. They didn't collect any patient data. They had a committee and put it together, and within about six months, they invented brain death. And they said they had to invent brain death because uh, there would be controversy in taking organs if they didn't do that. They also said they needed to uh, do that because the patients would continue to live and intensive care units would get crowded. So their, their solution was to cause somebody dead when they had an absence of functioning of the brain. They didn't even have to have destruction of the brain, just an absence of functioning of, of the brain. And, and it goes from there uh, in in terms of never is brain death based on any kind of studies or data that would be considered for any other uh, considered valid for any other scientific investigation and and uh, what happens of course is they observe an absence of functioning they don't know if the brain is destroyed and the thought process gets uh, confused because we hear brain death, and it's like brainwashing. You hear two nouns, brain and death, and the one that is that affects you the most is the one you remember. You remember the death. Well, death is is such that we do know what death is. We know we know know what that is from a relative who dies. We know it from a, a pet. Uh, A dog who dies, we know that that there certainly is an absence of functioning, but that absence of functioning is based on destruction, and the is based on destruction, decay. Once they're dead, it's there. Well, if you come back and consider the brain, Uh, yes, the brain is destroyed when there's death, and yes, um, there there will be no functioning of the brain. But you go the other way, which is what they've done with brain death is observe an absence of functioning. And then they conclude that somebody is dead. But when somebody is brain dead, they have a beating heart, they have circulation, they digest food, they put out urine, if they get an infection, they get fever, Uh, uh, if they're uh, pregnant and carrying a baby, that uh, They uh, can continue to carry the baby. Actually, one study recently, 27 out of 32 pregnant women who were declared brain dead delivered a healthy baby.
0: Wow. And,
1: and so uh, how can one um, be called, uh, how can one be dead and carry a baby in the womb? This, uh, it, it's so contrary to, uh, uh, to sound thought. And and so it's because of Joseph that I started to study the subject of brain death and have continued to study it. The most recent things that have been going on in brain death has to do with the Uniform Law Commission. The Uniform Law Commission is located in Chicago and they've been in existence since about 1890. And what th- that organization does is considers um, writing laws that would be accepted in all of the states. That's why it's a uniform law commission. And they they have the Uniform Determination of Death Act, which they uh, supported in 1961, and that law has been in place in almost all the states since that time. And the, the law, that law says that it's two ways written into the law that somebody can be declared uh, uh, dead, which is kind of foolish to start with. There's only one way that people are dead. And, but there's two ways. One is irreversible cessation of circulation and respiration, And number two is irreversible cessation of all functions of the entire brain, including the brainstem. Now, those kind of words sound very strong, cessation of all functions of the entire brain. That sounds very strong, but then what they put in the second part of the law is this determination is made in accord with accepted medical standards. Well, between 1968, when it started in 1978, there were 30 disparate sets of criteria that were uh, published, any one of which could be an accepted standard. And it goes on from there to where they are pushing for the criteria that the Academy of Neurology uh, is pushing for. And and they, they do it in such a way that they have the law, cessation of all functions, but then they don't test all the functions. They just right. test some, some of the functions. So and they defined this in 1961, when they pu- published the um, the book Defining Death by the President's Commission. What they said was that the, uh, the testing was done primarily at the bedside, And then which functions do they uh, test and pay attention to? And they say the relevant functions.
0: Mm.
1: The relevant functions can be defined in multiple ways and relevant to who and that kind of thing. But this thing has been going on. And, yes, I got involved with it because of Joseph, and I'm still involved with it. What's occurred with the Uniform Law Commission over the last couple of years is they are uh, attempting to rewrite the law to make it in conformity with how medicine is practiced. Now, how is medicine practiced? Well, it's practiced in, in this way. Aidan Hallou, a twenty year old girl. In- well let's
0: talk let's talk about that in a second. Let me take a quick break, doctor. I want to talk about I want to talk about this young lady, Aiden Haloo, and I also want to talk about Zach Dunlop, uh, who was declared legally brain dead. Uh, And then then, uh, now he's married with children and all of that. So I want to talk about these stories because they really do matter. But i got to take a quick break. Dr. Paul Byrne is with me on the Heidi Harris Show tonight. He's been talking about, quote, unquote, brain death and how it's been defined and how the definition has changed since the 60s. We're also going to talk about how much your organs are worth more than you think. Oh, there's a money aspect to this? Of course there is. That much more coming up next on the Heidi Harris Show. Dr. Byrne, so glad to have you stay with me. I so appreciate it. Uh, I was watching one of uh, the speeches that you gave. I believe it was testimony before Congress, and you were talking about—this is a few years back, and I've watched many things you've talked about—but you were talking about how much organs were worth, and this was maybe nine, ten years ago, and you were talking about how we're worth $1.5 to $2 million just in parts?
1: Yes, and th- those numbers still hold. In fact, they might even be increased. I'm sure. To— to look at the whole thing of organ transplants, every three years they collect the data as to how much uh, uh, how much the is billed for organ transplants. Right? And in 2020 was the most recent years. We'll get them get them again soon. But 48 billion dollars was billed for organ transplants, wow. which doc- doctors got six billion dollars. And so, you see, it's big business. Organ transplant industry is big business. Um, obviously, the the whole medical system is involved with it. And anybody that knows anything about uh, how medicine is pr- practiced, the neurologists, the neurosurgeons, the intensivists, the emergency room doctors, they're all in this together. And for the most part, they're all employed b- by the hospital administrator And the hospital administrator gets money primarily from Medicare and Medicaid, also some private insurance companies, but they all follow the same rules. So, you see, it's big business how it it works. And actually, to get organs, it oftentimes even begins at, at the scene in the sense that they decide which hospital they're going to go to. The level one hospitals are also the transplant hospitals.
0: Wow. Well, hold on, doctor. I don't want to gloss over that. That's a big deal. So let's say you're in a bad car accident or motorcycle accident, something like that. You're, you know, prime candidate. You're 17 to 30. You've got great organs. You're saying that from the time that person is severely injured, it's possible they can be taken to another hospital to more easily facilitate the procurement of their organs should they be able to convince the family they're brain dead.
1: That's correct. Wow. And every organ transplant center has what they call a designated requester. And that designated requester's job is to befriend the relatives uh, to do things. Oftentimes they're described as nicely dressed. What can I do to help you? Can I get a cup of coffee? Can I help you to rest and befriend them? Because it takes a little bit of time to Uh, make this uh, declaration of of, uh, brain death and already uh, uh, the law is written so so that every test that's necessary to determine if the organs are suitable for someone else and every treatment that's necessary to keep the organs in good shape can be done without any extra permission from anybody.
0: Okay, well, I don't want to gloss over that either, doctor. That's really important. So you're saying that there's a person who will be assigned at the hospital to basically show up and schmooze you, keep you happy, bring you coffee, bring you tissues and everything else, while behind the scenes they are testing to see whether or not your organs are harvestable or whether they're going to be good on the market or whatever.
1: That's correct.
0: Wow. Wow, that's that's a big deal because you've got bereaved parents. Let's go back to the motorcycle accident. You've got a 22-year-old kid, had a motorcycle accident, maybe lived in a state without helmets, maybe even wore a helmet. And that's a perfect candidate for this kind of thing. The family's crying. They don't know. And so you've got a salesperson in there trying to schmooze the family. This is unbelievable, doctor.
1: Yes. Well, I accept the fact that you say it's unbelievable because what is it? We expect that when we go to the hospital, we expect to be treated. And what actually what happens is that once they're in the hospital, if they have already signed an organ donor card, they are a prime candidate to get uh, organs from them. And uh, the, uh, the, best organ, uh, uh, the best organs come from young people. So, the people who's uh thirty years and and under their life is in jeopardy, especially wow. if they have signed an organ donor card because it makes it that there's really not much that anybody can do to help defend them because they have already said, "Yes, take my organs and and uh, and and so these kinds of things that we're talking about, Heidi the public has to be taught about them.
0: Yes, but- absolutely. Let's go let's go back. So you see so you've got somebody let's say once again a motorcycle accident. What if that person didn't sign a donor card? If they signed a donor card, I guess it sounds like you can practically guarantee they're going to say, "Oh, well, brain dead." But if they didn't sign a donor card, then what's the procedure then because you know they still want those organs. Now they've got to extra work extra hard to smooth the family or how does that work?
1: yes well the law is written so that there's a descending class of persons that can give permission under those circumstances and obviously the close relatives mother father son da- daughter brother sister the close relatives but it co- continues on down to the coroner or the hospital administrator wow and and uh and so uh, it, it is that way that the hospital administrator can give permission to take the organs, and at least uh, um, one of the reports that came from California a number of years ago, uh, it was that kind of situation, a young man, 20 years old, who was found unconscious, uh, unresponsive on the street. and and. Um, they uh, could not contact his parents and within a very short time, they took his organs. Wow. And, and then his parents found out about it. And so so uh, um, it's really important that, that uh, everybody, everyone learn about these things. They ha- have to know the deficiencies of, of how medicine is uh, involved and then how the, the laws, Make it so it can be. Uh, it, it makes them so that they can get organs, so they can do these things. There's two laws from the Uniform Law Commission: the Uniform Anatomical Gift Act and the Uniform Determination of Death Act. Now, uh, a minute or two ago, you were talking about the motorcycle uh, accident, and that—that—that uh, that, that is what that, Zach. What happened to Zach Dunlap? Yes, was I was going to get to weaver. Zach. Thank
0: you for that. Thank you for mentioning Zach Dumlat because I, I heard you talking about this in one of your uh, opportunities when you testified. And Zach Dumlat had been hurt in an ATV accident, right?
1: Correct. Yeah. And uh, taken to, uh, 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 transferred to a level one trauma center and uh, uh, Zach was uh, unresponsive. The brainwave test was interpreted as consistent with cerebral death. He was declared brain dead. And, and uh, he happened to have a cousin who was also a nurse, but not employed by that hospital, who continued to test him. And using the blunt part of a pocket knife got a response uh, uh, on his foot. And that was not too impressive to the nurse. So he did another test on under his fingernails and got a response and practically moved his arm over uh, at, at the nurse at that time. And then things started to go in the other direction. Mm.
0: The helicopter
1: was landing to take his organs and
0: wow. that,
1: that stopped the process of, of um, calling him brain dead and, and uh w- which in which case the treatment changes um uh, uh, instantly once they have that declaration of brain death
0: interesting because- let, let me back up let me back up a second we're speaking with dr paul Byrne. this is a heidi harris show of course he's an expert on neonatology He's a pediatrician and we're talking about brain death and how it's sometimes defined uh, very loosely let's put it that way also when zach dunlop did an interview he talked about hearing the doctor declare him brain dead And he said, I I was glad I couldn't get up and do what I wanted to do. He couldn't move yet, but he heard them declaring him brain dead. He was conscious. I mean, this is unbelievable doctor.
1: Yes, and the the thing about hearing, a a lot of people um, have uh, in some way or another demonstrated that they do hear longer than a lot of other things. And so he talks about how he could hear and and um, if if he didn't have a cousin who uh, got, helped turn things around, who knows? But they uh, but Zach could be all like a lot of other donors having his organs distributed widely uh, to, yes. to uh, multiple people. But uh, Zach continues to live because of a cousin and because of treatment getting changed at that time. Now, obviously. You can look back on it and say Zach was was never dead, uh, and and there's a difference between resuscitation and resurrection. Uh, uh, when we resuscitate a patient and the patient uh, continues to live, they were never dead. If they were dead, it would be a resurrection, and and so while Zach had that. Uh, the terms brain brain death written on his chart, he wasn't dead. Uh, And because of everything that goes on, uh, he continues to live. And maybe somebody would say, well, he wasn't dead. Well, I would agree with that. Who would say he was dead or else he'd be a resurrection? So Zach Dunlap gets a lot of notoriety uh, and and 20-year-old ATV accident, et cetera, et cetera. Zach Dunlap. I did the interview with him, but prior to uh, um, being uh, involved with Zach Dunlap, I told you about Joseph. And then, in uh, when I was in uh, Omaha, I had another patient. Uh, uh, TK is his li- is what is listed in the literature, but a four year old boy who got meningitis and then was said to be brain dead and I was uh, c- covering for uh, the doctors uh, about two weeks later, and the nurse called and said his blood pressure was going down. So I went to the hospital, I told his mother that his blood pressure was going down and and uh, I said, do you want me to do anything? And she looked up and said, well, what can you do? I said, well, we can give medication and sometimes the blood pressure uh, will respond to that. And she looked up at me and said, well, get on with it. I gave him medicine for his blood pressure and and he was on it for about 48 hours. And after that, he lived another 20 years and never getting anything <laughs> for his blood pressure. And I uh, uh, so he, he wasn't dead. Jai yeah. McMath is another patient that I uh, had the privilege of participating with. Uh, uh, Jahai McMath, a 13-year-old girl in California who had sleep apnea and got uh, tonsil surgery for that. And post-op, she had difficulty with bleeding and then was said to be brain dead. She was uh, diagnosed as brain dead by at least three neurologists and a consultant that was appointed by the court. And uh, uh, when I went to uh, see her, the way that I got in uh, was her stepfather said, oh, pastor, come on in here, because they really didn't want outside doctors to uh, uh, to see her. And it was really awful because they wouldn't call Jahai by her name. They referred to her as a dead body. Uh, wow. uh, we did get her out wow. to get treatment started there in California and got her out of uh, the hospital and transferred to New Jersey. Uh, She had a death certificate in California. That's the only way that we could get her out of California. Went to New Jersey, and New New Jersey uh, law is the only state that has a law that will protect the patient. That is, if the relatives do not accept that their loved one is dead, while there's circulation and respiration, then they have to continue to be treated in New Jersey. And it's the only state like that. New York is similar, but not exactly the same. And so Jahai got treated in the hospital in in, um, New Jersey, got the treatment she needed, got uh, uh, transferred out of the hospital, and then lived in uh, her home. Uh, it, it was uh, a, a, an apartment where I went to see her in the uh, apartment uh, several times. Uh, we did find a doctor in New Jersey to treat her. It was difficult to find a doctor because the doctors are all involved with this thing called brain death, and they don't want to get involved at, at that kind of thing. But we did find a, a, a wonderful doctor in New Jersey who did treat Jahaim. Jahai lived another uh, uh, five years in her in her home. Her her mother would say, "Give me a thumbs up," and she would raise her thumb. Uh, wow. uh, raise your left leg. She would raise her left leg, uh, and and uh, and so. And when she did die, uh, she died of something other than what was related to her brain. After uh, about three months after she was uh, declared brain dead and in the hospital in New Jersey, her menstrual periods uh, began. And uh, and who who would say a corpse has menstrual periods? It's it's so ridiculous these things that are going on with these patients. Yes. And
0: yes, and so it's insane. Anyway, hold, hold those that are thought, some doctor right And when we come we'll take a quick break and i want to talk with you about aiden hallou uh this was a nevada supreme court case very interesting case i want to talk about that and we we have about we'll have about 15 minutes left and i want to really get some things in here we'll talk about aiden hallou we'll also talk about the apnea test that they do that supposedly determines brain death. We'll get to that and and what people can do. Uh, how obviously they should be very concerned about these uh, types of things that are going on and how much money is involved in it. And when a loved one's in that situation and you're hysterical and they're telling you you know what you they you believe them and now you realize they're not telling you the truth. We'll get to more of that with Dr. Paul Byrne. I'm Heidi Harris. Coming right back. Dr. Paul Byrne is with me. He's a neonatologist and pediatrician, has been for years, Uh, past president of the Catholic Medical Association. He's the president of Life Guardian Foundation. We're talking about brain death and how it's, you know, it's a billion dollar industry to grab your organs. All right. And so many times you're not technically dead. And if you were dead... Then they might not be able to use your organ. So we're going to, we've got a lot more to get to before we close out this hour, but I want to get to as much as I can. Doctor, appreciate you being with me and staying with me. Aiden Halou was a case out of Nevada, a 20 year old girl who had a, a situation happen. She went in for to the hospital complaining of abdominal pain and ultimately had some problems from anesthesia. And they declared her brain dead. And the Nevada Supreme Court said, no, she's not. But after that, they made some changes to Nevada law about that that would basically make it, if, if my understanding is correct, easier to declare somebody like her brain dead in the future so there wouldn't be any argument. Is that how it went down?
1: Correct. And things like doing the apnea test that you mentioned, they don't have to uh, notify the relatives that they're going to do it. And it's also written into the law that if a, a member of the family of Objects to the acceptance of the brain death, then uh, then the family may be subjected to all medical and legal expenses that are incurred because of that, that's and uh, uh, that's how they changed the law. With Aiden Blue, she had brainwave testing three times, each time she had some brainwave activity, and they they just stopped doing them and. They, they didn't do any more, so the, the lower court uh, in Nevada accepted that she was brain dead. But then when it was Supreme, appeal, uh, appealed to the Supreme Court in uh, Nevada, uh, we got a 7-0 uh, ruling saying that the Supreme Court was not convinced that she was—certainly uh, uh, she wasn't dead, but they weren't convinced that she was brain dead, sent it back to the lower court. And yes, she did die during that time uh, uh, in, in between that. But they, there were things that went wrong. The first, first thing everybody has to know, she was a 20-year-old girl who was a college student and, and um, uh, got abdominal pain. And when they did the procedure, which was laparoscopic procedure, they found no pathology, but she never woke up. Her, her father was astute enough to go to the court and get uh, named as the guardian, which is very, very important for everyone to know that if you can't speak for yourself, then if you're 18 years or uh, above 18 years, once you're at the age of majority, they do not look to your mother or father. And so Ooh, that's everyone over doctor. the age of 18 has to have a power of attorney. Because Aiden Lou's father, Fanwell, went to court and got that then. He was the guardian, and he was the one that was able to speak for his daughter. But, right. uh, and so everyone listening has to realize you have to have a power of attorney if you're 18 or older. And that power of attorney, I think you should name your mother or father uh, until you're married or have some right. other uh, uh, person to speak for you. And, and uh, so Aiden Alou was that kind of thing. It, I mean, the things that the relatives go through because the hospital are reluctant to give out any, any records. And then you mentioned the apnea test. Everybody has to learn about the apnea test because what it is, it's a, a test that's done on a patient who has normal color, normal blood pressure, uh, um, respiration, digest food, and they're on a ventilator, and you gotta know that they have recently had a significant event of some kind, and they take away the ventilator to see if they can breathe on their own, and if the ventilator is going at 20 cycles per minute, they take it away for 10 minutes, so they skip 200 breaths, during this time of the apnea test. Wow. So everyone has to learn that you have to say no to the apnea test, it's really important. The other place you need to say no is no at the license bureau, you should say no. And if you've ever said yes to being an organ donor, you should learn from this and other things, go to lifeguardianfoundation.org and you can get more information but you have to go back to the License Bureau and tell them that you do not want to be an organ donor. And then you should know that the laws in every state are written such that if you go back, the only way they will accept that you're not an organ donor is if you have it documented. But the License Bureau doesn't have any way to document a negative. They, they uh, And so they don't provide you a way to document it. So you have to have a way to document it. Uh, we do have a card that we send out. If People get in touch with us at Life Guardian Foundation. And the, the card basically says that you want to be treated if you get in the hospital. And it, and it says you don't want to have an apnea test and you don't want to be an organ donor. And gives you a way to, uh, to at least declare these things and designate someone to speak for you. It's just a little thing that can perhaps be helpful. I'd say perhaps because the uh, organ transplant industry, which includes medicine, the laws, and the philosophers and the theologians have been involved with this also. Uh, And all all of it revolves around getting your organs, not protecting your life until uh, as long as you are alive. And that's what we do at Life Guardian Foundation We protect life from the beginning of life until death. And when someone is uh, dead, there's a change in state. The change in state is from the living state to the dead state, and the dead is the dead remains. And that remains is manifest in destruction, disintegration. And right. so we have a model law that we recommend, and we, we uh, recommend it be, be uh, accepted in all the states, and it says no one shall be declared dead unless the respiratory and circulatory and the entire brain have been destroyed and so uh, it, it it's a model law so what do we recommend now especially since the uniform law commission has gone through this thing of making their their uniform determination of death act much much weaker much much less protection for the for the patient and mm-hmm. uh, and so there has to be a law we have a model statute that we recommend so we we recommend an absence of function is not enough for the declaration of death, and it never was before organ transplants. The way it was done when we learned how to declare somebody dead, there was no breathing, no heartbeat, no, no response, and that had to be there for a period of time. And that period of time uh, uh, was never absolutely written down as 20 minutes, 30 minutes, or hours, or whatever it is, but... Once yeah. someone goes from being alive until dead, there is a destruction that goes on and on, and out, it uh, uh, continues on.
0: It's a distinction that's very important, Doctor. Thank you for your time. Thank you for what you continue to do. Everybody, go to LifeGuardianFoundation.org. To get more information. Thank you, Doctor. Appreciate it.
1: Thank you, Heidi.
0: That was Dr. Paul Byrne. You can look him up at lifeguardianfoundation.org. I wish I had more time with him. I will get him on again, and I'll probably get him on a video of my Headlines with Heidi videos that I do when I have a little bit more time to talk to him because I didn't get through anywhere near as many questions as I had. I hope that was informative to you. Please look up Dr. Paul Byrne. And find the information for yourself, too, because he's been talking about this for decades. And a lot of people aren't aware of a lot of this information. I certainly was not until very recently. And, of course, tonight I learned even more. All right. So catch me on Sunday nights, 7 to 9 p.m., 97.1 FM Talk St. Louis. And, of course, you can catch these podcasts. In this podcast of course I used audio from my radio show but I usually do something different. You can also find me Heidi Harris show Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and heidiharrisshow.com and heidiharris.com too. So you can't get away from me even if you choose to. Until we meet again, remember God is in charge of it. I will see you very soon. Here's Tony Scottwell. <laughs>